and welcome to Making and Doing. My name's Graham Newman. I'm the founder of Design School Asia. Throughout this series of programs, I'm asking leading creative, technology and business industry experts how their practice is responding to change and how this change can foster cultural, economic and social benefit in Southeast Asia. In today's program, we are talking to the lawyer, economist and data scientist, Dr. Pirapat Shoksuatanaskyu, lecturer of law and economics at the Faculty of Law, Chulalongkorn University. He also teaches and researches in the area of competition law, legal analytics, law and technology, regulatory impact assessment, legal logics, and law and development. Before working as a full-time lecturer in law and economics, Dr. Shork Sawatanaskyu worked as a supervisor in economics at Cambridge University and a data scientist at agoda.com. Who better then to unpack the challenges Thailand faces in the digital era as the country emerges battered and bruised from the pandemic? We look towards what is possible in 2021 from an innovation perspective as government and industry work towards getting the 10 S-curve industries back on track and discuss how higher education and the private sector can support them with more research and development. We also discuss how companies can best prepare for the forthcoming Personal Data Protection Act, or PDPA for short. And finally, good news for both lawyers and their clients. We get an insight into how groundbreaking legal technology is enabling more informed advice and faster dispute resolution through e-arbitration. All this coming up right now on Making and Doing. Let me start, Kumpirapat, by just asking you a very broad question. What's, what's your take on the economic projections for 2021? That's a tricky question. Well, I think it's going to be very challenging, right? We're going to get better in terms of this um, pandemic, because I mean, all these vaccines are um, coming out. And I believe that um, by, the, by mid-2021, um, uh, we should be, I mean, substantially better in terms of our situation with this pandemic. And you know that our industry, I mean, our economy relies a lot on tourism, right? 19%, uh, I think, isn't it, of GDP? Yes, it's, it's quite a huge, huge amount. But the sooner we can welcome travellers, I think the better for the economy. I, I do believe as well that um, the change, I mean, some changes are temporary, but some changes will be permanent. I, I do expect that um, we will shift towards more sort of like production based or something that is less volatile when it comes to the sort of situation. Because I mean, you, you see from this situation that uh, when you rely so much on tourism or services, especially um, you can call this over the luxurious services, right? I mean, people can just, I mean, the first, the first bit in the budget that you cut when you when you are running out of steam basically is, is tours. Yes, right? mm. that's what I do at least. So um, you see how volatile it is, right? So um, this is this is why um, we cannot solely rely on it. You really need to focus on something that's more innovative, something that is like um, has this more intrinsic value that people would would need it, and you. So so that I think structurally uh, we we're gonna sort of move towards that, and hopefully the economy will be better by the um, at least the third quarter of um, of the next year. Yes, I, th- I think the government projections are three point five percent growth. 
is optimistic. But yes. um, just judging from um, because when you talk about growth, uh, it's related to the, the current size, and uh, we have been negative for quite a certain amount uh, for this year, and uh, to have three. Three percent growth, um, judging from the, the size of pie, that's uh, smaller. So I think that is okay for the next year. That that's that's what I see. Um, vaccines will come, and um, the recovery is going to be challenging. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of hyperbole pre-pandemic about the 10 S-curve industries that Thailand has identified. So uh, internet of things, biotech, inbound uh, health tourism, manufacturing. What's your take on how far we can progress with those S-curve industries post-pandemic? Well, um, good question. Um, I think first thing is, um, the question is, uh, has pandemic been influencing the sort of like new S-curve industries or new this planned we all we have this sort of strategic plan for 20 years as well i think um likely not 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 really um i think um because this is much the plan for the long run but um what will sort of prolong this the, the period is pretty much uh, because now we i think we need to focus more on the recovery of the economy i mean the, the, the impacts have been quite subside so far but um I think it's going to be uh, manifesting, and uh, we're going to see something in the, in the probably in the first or the second quarter of the next year. We also know that um, unemployment or any of these standard measures are not reflecting like so well here in Thailand because of this um, sort of like um, you don't really have this welfare structure that people can manage to be unemployed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So basically, you find something to do, and no matter how bad it's paid, but. Um, but well, we, we're going to see some sort of symptoms soon, I believe. Um, but when it comes to these industries, so so that's pretty much the short-term things. You have pretty much a limited resource right, to, to, to deal with problems. And um, in the next one or two quarters, I think we have to put more and more resources to solve it as a short-run yes. um, economic problem. Yes. But in the long run, I think I still think um, these ideas, I mean, these um, sort of like new industries are promising. We also have this EEC coming up, uh, some huge infrastructure uh, due to be finished, right, the new uh, train stations and all these um, rails that um, go all the way up north to um, the Isan right? Yeah. That's the Eastern Economic Corridor. Eastern Economic Corridor, yes. Yeah. Um, so hopefully that will help. Having economic growth is one thing. Having a just distribution is absolutely another thing. So um, that is actually what I'm more concerned because we've seen that everywhere in the world where um, you, you see some economic growth, but um, you also see that the degree of inequality has increased even more. Right. So, um, yeah, I think so many challenging things like you. Because I think there's a strong case for the, the, the backbone of the Thai economy is SME level. It's from food vendors to, you know, mom and pop stores. And, yeah. and it's that middle income gap yeah. almost of how do we actually support and invest more in SME rather than enterprise level? Mm-hmm. Because there must be su- such a, a considerable amount of the population that are involved with family businesses at SME level. I think it's quite clear that um, that will pretty much boils down to um, the business territory where competition is fair, right? Um, surely as a big firms, you see um, like a retail industry. This is quite clear that as a 7-Eleven, you pretty much sell everything. Yeah. And uh, nobody likes competition, uh, especially in the business world. 
I mean, good news is we have this sort of new competition law, but um, slightly moderate news is like um, it still cannot really prove its effectiveness, especially uh, when you when you saw this um, verdict um, in the uh, the CP merger case of Tesco. To be honest, it's quite disappointing. Yeah, I think we all. Yeah, it's I think it's quite disappointing. As as an academy who has who's been working in this area, and I feel like, I mean, the reasons given are just insufficient. And if you cannot make this sort of strong statement to the public, then uh, it's going to be quite difficult to to search back in, in the sense of like reputation. And because that is so necessary, right? You have a regulator who can actually um fear yes and these these um corporates or practitioners. So, so I think um, when you talk about nurturing or supporting small and medium businesses, it's all about um, how they would be able to survive and play on a level playing field together with the larger businesses, yes, and family businesses as well. I think I, I want to put it um, uh, cut into shapes here uh, a bit in the sense that I'm okay if you say that uh, we want to promote big firms, for example, but you have to be so clear. You have to justify that. Okay, I'm going to promote big firms in order to compete against um, abroad, like um, Korea, South Korea. They're exactly the same thing. They have Chevrolet and they have this uh, big business, Samsung. Yeah, the big set. went into the global stage. Mm. And but you have also justified how you because when you create that sort of like um, strategy, then you have justified to the people as well. Like okay. We're going to do that, but we're going to redistribute it because mm-hmm. we need a pie to get better, larger first, and then we're going to be able to separate bigger piece of pie and distribute it to all the people. So I'm okay with either way, but you have to be clear how to, like whose benefit is comes first and whose benefit come later. So yeah, I mean that that's. That's a statement, but um, this is quite um, worrisome because um, you know after pandemic, some firms uh, probably cannot survive because um, due to this shortage of money, mm-hmm. and uh, probably they have to sell their company, to sell their businesses, and we're gonna have uh, this wave of mergers coming up. I, I predict, and when you have that, it's gonna sort of concentrate to, to the industry to a certain extent. A lot of industry will be get will be getting more and more concentrated. So, um, if the competition authority cannot really control that or cannot really um, make such a statement, then um, it's, it's it's gonna be a problem in the future, in the long run. So good news for M and A lawyers, but bad news bad news for um, SMEs. And I, I agree, it's it's that middle tier. And also in, in design practice, yes. you, you have the, the the major players, and mm-hmm. most design practices are between two and twelve people. Yes. Uh, I think the smaller ones will survive. Mm-hmm. But but if if you if you're responsible for payroll and you have a headcount of fifteen to twenty, yeah. it's going to be very very difficult, yeah. and it makes you vulnerable. And I think many of the large companies are going to park their tanks on the gardens and just basically you know acquire yeah. very aggressively yes so in in addition to the design industries you see that happening across other mm. other industries yeah, wow. right so so this polarization has been such a phenomenon right all in pretty much in every single industry and it could be good or bad but um, I think it's a role government as well to really step forward and ensure that um, a fair share would be um, distributed yeah 
I actually want to come on and talk to about government Government needs to play a central role in revolutionising public policy in the digital era. Mm-hmm. Are they doing enough? Um, I, I can I cannot speak for other countries, but here in Thailand we've seen some movements, uh, which is good. I mean, we have this sort of grand scheme of Thailand 4.0. Yep. Which um, at least you make some statements that okay, this is uh, one of the priorities. But also, um, we have seen some sort of like wave of um, support to startups in so many industries. This sort of things, I think, uh, really needs this sort of like very seriousness in the sense that you you don't just support as things like make us sort of put a put an ads on and that's it. But um, you have to take it really seriously and create what we call the ecosystem. Right, and that yes. is not a not 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 something you can take lightly. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that the government say they're gonna put, they're gonna pull some money, they're gonna throw some money at you, and hopefully we're gonna have like a, a few unicorns afterwards. It's not like you are trees that you can actually just um, throw the seeds and you give them some water. Mm-hmm. Eventually, um, you have forests. It is more complicated than that. I think we've seen some progress in that front. Um, also, um, I think one of the most important thing is about um, human resources. Uh, we've seen some relaxation of um, of these regulations. In in the past few years, uh, there's been this program which um, they call guillotine, guillotine, pretty much in French, um, guillotine. So um, the idea is to pretty much eradicate as many regulations as possible. I think this is quite a good signal. I do too. The lawyers yeah. find yeah. it um, turn to be more and more cautious about enacting laws because they know that having a law is actually burdensome, not just to um, the government but also to the public, right? Because you asked about the government role in policy, yes. and one of the best things that the government can do is to control lace when it is utterly unnecessary, right? I believe that there was a sort of this um, pilot program. Uh, that they launched um, almost two years already. Um, they try to eradicate um, regulations and these procedures, and as a result, they they eradicated um, almost thousand processes. That um, basically, this sort of application, this sort of like um, they have to wait for the permission, this sort of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, they have eradicated um, almost over thousand um, of these processes which um, they claim to save more than a billion baht. I mean, uh, that's, that's from both sides, right? from the government and also from, um, from the private sector as well. So that is one, one good signal. Um, I think we are on the right track, hopefully. And also, in, in addition to easing regulations, surely we need to see tax incentives as well. Yeah. Uh, I mean, particularly uh, for innovation and uh, uh, digital. I think we've seen some in the past few years, right? Um, for example, okay, we talk about startup, and we know that um, if you invest in startups, you can get some exemption as well. So um, that's good, tax incentive. But um, again, um, I think I think this tax problem is not just uh, spe- and just specifically here in Thailand, but everywhere. In the US, they um, I think Biden has made a statement so clearly that um, he's gonna increase tax, especially for the rich, and try to redistribute it better. So um, here in Thailand as well, you. I mean, having tax incentive is good, especially um, if you wanna 
would you if you would like to invite people to invest more but um, I think the harder question is where do we direct these benefits too yes of course because the idea is pretty much you, you you say that I don't want to collect money as a tax because I know that you can actually directly inject money into the industry or the space that I want to but the question is why you say startup but um, is that sufficient you say that you donate directly but um is that really what you really want because um, you can use that amount of money to build infrastructure that in the long run might be more beneficial I don't have this sort of like uh, instant set of recommendations to, to, to provide but um, I think it's so important to be, um, be more sort of like all-rounded when we come up with this sort of tax policy. Perhaps that comes on to my next question is, mm-hmm. is we should be doing more research and development yeah. I think in, in the higher education and postgrad area yeah. and also form more symbiotic relationships for research and development with the private sector yes. specifically with, with tech and innovation yeah. what's your take on that? Well um, we have to admit that there are some particular fields that are that have their own beauty and so PL in nature um, like philosophy um, linguistics or um, classics uh, we don't have that here actually, but particularly but um, all those views are pra- uh, more theoretical and pure so that's 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 good and you need that side of the of the world of the nature always but um, in terms of the sort of practicality um, especially when you talk about law you talk about engineering we talk about um, business in particular and also design skills it is quite I don't know, it's, it's, it's counterintuitive when you talk about um, these students mm. who are studying in this program or even the lecturers who have never practiced in, in the industry. Yes. Mm. Uh, the question that you will follow, I mean, it is much better in, um, in some schools, like for example, in design school, where a lot of, um, a lot of lecturers also um, practicing as well, right? But um, so, um, so this is a blending between a practicality, like know how really people do business, like in, in the real world. Um, I think in Germany, if I remember correctly, they have a sort of dual, dual degree program where you study um, in the university for two years and then another two years you are actually studying in the industry. I think that's something that's really practical and um, you don't want a lawyer who graduates four years. I just talk from my point of view. And then when you come out of law school and you say that I don't know how to practice law because I never. That is so bizarre by nature. Yes. I also think as, as well as as well as the core competencies yes you also need the soft skills you, exactly. you, need, you need leadership you exactly. need mediation you need to be able to from a design point of view you need to talk to non-designers and lawyers need to talk to non-lawyers and actually that those those intrinsic skills come through professional practice and being able to be uh, taking your comprehensive education but applying that to being a multi-professional in industry which the classroom doesn't necessarily teach you and I think having that ability to communicate to an audience not in your field Mm -hmm. is something again that we need to address I'd like to talk about PDPA yeah as well Uh, this was tabled in May then has obviously sat on the sofa during the pandemic Uh, but we are all due to be PDPA 
compliant by May 21. The effect has been postponed to um, the 30th of May. This is something that all businesses need to comply with and all universities need to comply with. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Um, it is not limited to um, private sectors. It's pretty much any organizations. Did the level of analysis of this um, act or this law in, in, in general, um, because we have GDPR in the in Europe, right? Um, is uh, the level of analysis at the activity level? There's no absolute exemption for any organization. Um, we know that um, this is a there. There was a a, a hot issue like a, a tension between security and privacy, right? Yes. And uh, some people believe that um, if you are working, if your organization have this sort of like security function, then you're going to be completely exempt from the law, which is um, not true. Okay, so pretty much uh, it, it doesn't matter if you are private or public organizations, mm -hmm. as long as your activities uh, involve this um, processing of personal data, then you you will be falling under this PDPA. Okay, okay. And is that, what do, what do uh, SMEs and again, I'm referring to design practitioners specifically. Um, how can they be fit for purpose um, looking ahead to when this is implemented? Right. Well, um, the law, I think the law has been quite considerate enough. Uh, it has explicitly distinguished between larger and smaller firms in terms of the requirements that it needs from um, these compliances. Um, if you are smaller, usually you are dealing with less data, right? Um, for example, as a for example as a design school, you might be dealing with um, your students. You might be dealing with your employees. So yeah, I mean, what I think if I have to put in two sentences, not literally, but um, in, in in principle, when I when I when I tell people, um, if you have to comply with this law, there are just only two things you need to do. The first thing is you you just need to be able to tell how you can process personal data. Because the, the, the concept of law says that you cannot process personal data unless, and there are pretty much um, seven conditions right. saying in the law. And we call these conditions as legal basis. Like mm -hmm. you have to ask for consent. Yes. You have to have this sort of contract, contractual relationship. Yes, and, yeah. op and opt out. Um, uh, the consent has its own like unique forms, right? You cannot, um, you cannot ask people to opt out. You have to make mm. it so clear, um, no misleading um, clauses in it. Yeah, but um, there are seven legal bases and you can just pick one of them. You don't have to go for consent all the time. Ah, oh, that's yeah. interesting. So this isn't this isn't something terrifying. Yeah, I mean, it, a lot it, of people sort of. Is it a degree of common sense, and mm -hmm. and the the regulations in place, you know, will be will be favourable to both parties. You know, both the the the, the, the user and the supplier mm -hmm. of the data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, I I think. So that's one bit, right? Uh, the second bit, um, quickly, is just um, you have to provide security. Yeah. Um, you keep data safe. Um, you keep it um, confidential. Keep it uh, in an integral way. Make sure that this is always accessible. 
Yeah, that is pretty much the thing. And you, you mentioned about the um, both sides will benefit from this. It's absolutely true, right? Um, you you sort of like be more called this more conscious uh, when you are dealing with data and so pretty much you as a, as someone who is called um, by term by legal term data controller now you need uh, the law just requires you to know what data you are dealing with which is actually good for you as a business as well you don't want to keep something you don't know its purpose right and uh, as a someone who whose data got collected uh, which I'm legally called uh, data subjects. I at least deserve to know, right, as a person, that what sort of data, my data, that you are working with. Precisely. And why do you need them? Just that. I mean, um, and that that goes to the point that I, I said, um, it is not always possible to ask for consent. For example, um, if you have to ask consent from the criminals, that's personal data, but who, which criminals would give you data Precisely. as a government yes. agency? And if I walk into this building and you have CCTV, and when, if, when, when could you ask for my consent that I'm going to have your yes. footage? Yes. That yeah. is not possible, and that, that is actually another legal basis, one of the seven called legitimate interests for you. Okay. So that you can use that one, but you just we have to ensure that the impact on me is minimal. We'll see how it plays out, but I, I think all of us are generally really encouraged to hear from you that, that actually, you know, if we are pragmatic about this, uh, it, it's not going to be too painful for either, you know, freelancers, small businesses or enterprises to, to be fit for purpose for when this PDPA compliance comes in. Just finally, I, I wanted to ask you, how can we use technology to leverage legal practice? Where, where, where do you see speculatively mm-hmm. what could be probable or possible for the future of the legal industry? Right. Yes, that's a very good question. Um, I mean, you may have heard um, in recent years that um, artificial intelligence has become more and more powerful and has become an like, essential part in so many industries. Legal industry is not an exception. There's such a thing called legal tech. And okay. uh, it's pretty much the way that you um, use these sort of like technologies um, to solve problems in the legal industry. And when it comes to solving problems, um, again, um, it could be the problem of the lawyers themselves, right? Um, because, I mean, well, I mean, we know lawyers and we know that, I mean, one, one if um, the most probably uh, famous reputation of um, lawyers, they have to do with tons and tons of documents. Mm. So, um, and that is actually what AIs are very good at. Um, there's a, this subfield in artificial intelligence called natural language processing, which has been advanced so um, rapidly in the, in the past few years. And now its ability to understand natural language has been improved quite substantially. And that will benefit lawyers in terms of like classifying documents, um, filtering documents. We have been experiencing this um, probably unconsciously mm. in the spam, right? Nowadays, you see that almost all of our inboxes are just free from spams, right? Um, that is one bit. But also as, a, um, as citizens, you have as a as a, a citizen, what what you will benefit from this technology is pretty much um, this information. Because if, if I if I have to put lawyers in court in the very narrow sense, their role in the society is pretty much to provide information when people have conflict. 
right? You yes. have this boot, mm. and they just step forward and say, "Okay, this is your position mm. uh, under the law." Uh, but if the lawyers are unsure who's going to be the winner, then say they just bring the case to the court. Yes, and the court will point out, "This is your position." Yes, I'll say you win. But um, not all disputes go to the court. No, because there's obviously arbitration as, yes. well, as, as well, which I think both parties ultimately would, would prefer not to go to court than they would prefer to go exactly. through, through arbitration. Is that something that you think natural language processing and the, these AI technologies can help with improving the quality of advice and not having to have so much dispute where you have to go to court? Yes. Um, you, you, you imagined, okay, uh, there are two sort of levels, right? Um, one level is um, in the arbitration or alternative dispute resolution, as we call it, ADR. Um, we know that uh, there have been um, so, like, so many attempts to, uh, to adopt technologies. You look at um, Chinese Internet Court, they have adopted advanced technology to, to help um, both help human um, judges to, um, to to give verdicts, and also um, having these AI to actually give verdicts themselves in in more like relatively simpler cases. Uh, you see, it's in Estonia where you have this AI court that um, if you have sort of like small cases, you can bring to, uh, your dispute to these um, AI courts first, and if you are unsatisfied. You just um, appeal it to the human court. So um, that is one level that you actually um, accommodate, right? You can accommodate the judicial process. But um, another level is actually, um, there's so many cases. If I have to put a 100% of disputes, I think less than 1% actually go to any of dispute resolution. That's because an extraordinary there are number. accidents every, every single yeah. minute mm. on, the, on the street, right? There are um, people violating contract terms every single minute. And if every single dispute have to go to the court, then the court will pretty much, um, yeah. you have you probably require a million judges in yes. Thailand, and that is impossible. Yes. But there is a reason why um, some disputes won't go to the court, because going to the court is expensive. Yeah. It's costly, especially in some cultures where it is um, not so good for your reputation. Right, um, and uh, essentially, it boils down to the knowledge. Like, if you have pretty much the right expectation of your position, then uh, if you can sort of align your positions after the dispute occurred, then it's gonna be res- it's gonna be resolved easily. And by, I mean, that is the second layer of the the role of technology where you. You can actually sort of provide information. You search, okay, this is a fact happening, and uh, what do you think? What is my position? And this is actually possible now. You have so many technologies, um, so many big firms have launched this sort of product as a legal tech, where you can actually um, fill out um, your facts in all your own terms, not legal terms. And it will say that, okay, this, these are the provisions that you have to care about. These are the cases that are relevant to your case. And then now you are having much, you are having much better information to actually decide whether you should bring the case to the court or pretty much that is like your personal lawyer. So I, yeah, that's what I see. 
I think I think that's absolutely fascinating. And again, I can see symbiotic relationships between legal practice and design, and how design can actually use this to uh, have affordances at the user experience level, and actually make this uh, you know a, an enriching experience to take AI technology, but but deliver it in in a very succinct and clear mm-hmm. manner. Um, really looking forward to watching that space and seeing legal tech develop. Pat, thank you so much for your time this morning. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And you can contact Dr. Shork Sawatanaskyu at his LinkedIn page and find out more about Tula Longkong's Faculty of Law program at law.tula.ac.th. That brings us to the end of today's program. Thanks to Kumpirapat for sharing his insights on how economists and lawyers are making change happen. To join our network of students, educators and practitioners helping make sense of what's happening right now as design evolves from making things to making things possible, go to designschool.asia and consider joining our Making and Doing Facebook group where we exchange ideas about how design education and practice is responding to the social, cultural and economic challenges in Southeast Asia. Making and Doing is produced by supervillain Dana Bluin. Join us at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Graham Newman, thanks for listening.